0: So this time I talked to Ma'ad Abu Ghazala, he lives in the USA, but his roots are in Nablus in Palestine. 2014, Ma'ad founded the NGO Daily Hogs, a safe space both for humans and also non-human animals. It's in a village called Asira, very close to Nablus, and his aim was to give something back to society. So we talked about the vision of Daily Hogs, how the COVID-19 pandemic also hit this organisation, what kind of daily struggles they face and how the work for animal welfare is made more difficult by the fact that, among other things, freedom of movement is restricted by the occupation, and therefore sometimes extraordinary or very creative ideas and solutions are needed. So we also talked about Maad's future plans and dreams for daily hogs. I hope you enjoy listening. meet you finally i'm really really curious to get to know you actually because i heard a lot about you also we texted each other now for quite a while um, so it's really great to see you (laughs) and to really speak also to you Um, yeah first of all thank you very very much for taking your time for this interview and to talk about your work and your foundation in palestine and i mentioned your foundation already in the last episode so the listeners might know a little bit about this. But still, now we have you like as the expert. So it's great to see you here.
1: I appreciate you giving me this opportunity to share with you what the uh, foundation is all about and all the work we're doing.
0: So maybe you can first introduce yourself for the listeners a little bit.
1: Okay. It's uh, mod Abu Ghazala um, in Arabic Maad Abu Ghazala, which is father of the gazelle, in case somebody's interested. <laughs> um, so I was born in Nablus, in the West Bank. At the time I was born, it was 1962, it was part of Transjordan. Uh, and in 1967, it got taken over by Israel. And uh, since that time, my family was living abroad um, in Saudi Arabia. And then I went to the United States for university and I stayed there. Uh, so I worked in computer science. Um, I started a company, and um, and in 2012, I sold the company, and I decided I wanted to do something with the money that was um, more fulfilling, because I, I was I felt fortunate to have the opportunity to be able to make the money. So I thought, you know, it's it's luck that I was in this situation. So you know, maybe I should do something to give back to society. And um, the the best that I could hope to do is give back to the country I was born, which is Palestine, which is what led to me creating this foundation.
0: You said that you wanted to give something back to society, but this is now like a foundation for animals. Uh, So, yeah, Yeah. how did you end up doing something for animals for another species?
1: Well, it's, it's part of what I feel is my own maturity as a person is not to just take things at face value when I when I first went back to I got the money and I went back to Palestine and I tried to see okay where what is the most value I can provide to society and and you know the, the knee-jerk reaction is oh give them food give them clothing give them shelter um, you know because it's a it's a very poor country uh, with very little opportunities for people and uh, that that's what my first reaction would have been. And, and I got that advice is, you know, don't do anything new is just give money to existing foundations that are already on the ground working because uh, they all need help. But my thinking now was that the sense that I got wasn't that the biggest thing that they were lacking was food and shelter, uh, even in the refugee camps. And I did spend a little bit of time in the refugee camps. That their biggest problem wasn't food and shelter. They all seemed to have food and they all seem to have shelter. Now, if you want to compare, uh, I'm sure in the West, people have more food and more shelter and bigger shelter and more space. But that doesn't buy you happiness, right? So I didn't think that what was missing was food and shelter. I thought what was missing was, or what the problem was, was um, the emotional reaction created by the occupation which is dominant. I mean, you've been there, you know what it's like, is you can't avoid the occupation 24 hours a day, it's in your face. Even when you go to sleep, the occupation is there, because in the middle of the night you could wake up and Israeli soldiers could be in your house. So there's never a moment where you feel free from military occupation and from the potential for violence. Uh, That's always around. That, to me, was a bigger problem to uh, attaining happiness for people there. Than lack of food and shelter, because there's lots of NGOs that provide that. Enough, not as much as the West, but enough of that. The bigger problem was emotional. There just is not much emotional support for people uh, living in the West Bank, especially uh, dealing with the trauma Mm. of being exposed to violence. Any moment in your life, you can be exposed to violence. So that's what I felt, is that the sense that at any moment you could be exposed to violence really wore down on the on the people there. So then I thought, you know, what, what can I do about it? I have no psych- psychology background. I, I, there's not much I can do to address that. But what I can instill is if there's this negative emotion that's present all the time of violence, I thought maybe I can counterbalance that with showing people what it's like To care for each other and to love one another and to not feel obligated to live by this worldview that might mix right. That those with the machine guns and the power dictate what happens in the world. I wanted to establish a sanctuary, a little bubble, tiny little bubble, because I can't change the, the whole country or the world, but I can change a little bubble where I could show people what it's like in a world where... If you're weak or strong, it doesn't matter. We all support each other, and we all love each other.
0: I mean, I, I was there only once uh, at the shelter, at the dog shelter. You have mainly dogs, but also some donkeys. You you found this kind of place or this bubble of, um yeah, count, as you said, it's a counterbalance. So what was your first mm-hmm. vision of like what kind of place did you want it to be? Only for animals, because I mean, I was there post-COVID, so there weren't that many people, yeah. local people. Um, right. What was the original idea?
1: You know, I had a vision originally, and I, I tried to keep to the vision, but it got derailed, as you mentioned, by COVID. Uh, the The problem I saw was that the main thing I wanted to do was to have it 50-50, is have a um, place for children to in, consider it, this is their place, and a place for animals to consider it their place and a place where they can come together and share it. So I split the property up. I don't know if you, you noticed it, because it had changed a lot since COVID. But uh, the property, it was one, I bought one acre of land, and I split the, the, the um, different levels. The bottom level was for the animals, and the middle level was for um, the children. So I built a playground for them. I was building in the middle of building a pirate ship with a slide where they could all have fun. There's a soccer field and a stadium. So all that we built out in a little garden where they could grow, um, fruits and vegetables. And, and then the top level was, um, it was three levels. The top level was mostly my house. I built a cabin for me to live in and, um, other uh, administrative things. We had a, a container we converted to a little clinic. That's on the top level also. Uh, and so we did bring in, we brought in busloads of children. They would come. Uh, they're all afraid. Almost 100% of children in Palestine are afraid of dogs. Uh, the only dogs they're exposed to are either um, with the military and they attack people, or they're in the street. Uh, if always afraid, and um, so you can't really approach them because dogs in the street don't trust people. They um, they get mistreated, and unfortunately, the the children learn that um, mistreating dogs is a way to sort of show off. So there's a lot of kids that that abuse animals in the street because they don't know better. So this is what comes in the the buses, is children afraid of dogs and um, wanting to exert their masculinity by um, throwing rocks and stuff at dogs. So we don't just throw them together. We start out by bringing the kids in to play in the playgrounds and driving outside. A lot of them don't have much opportunity to play outside. There's no space for them to play outside. Uh, they just play in the streets at best. So there's a nice playground for them. They play and then I ask them who wants to come play with the animals and nobody does. So usually there's a few children on the side and I just take them by the hand. I say, if you want to come, well, let's go cut the donkeys. So we, we go into the little tent area where um, the donkeys are, and, you know, I, I take them by the hand. I say, here, let's pet the donkey, because, they, again, they're not used to seeing donkeys in this environment. They're used to seeing donkeys being beaten and abused. Uh, they're used for labor in Palestine, so that they, nobody just has a donkey. They, they use them for something. And so, you know, they, they've never seen them as a fellow living creature that can appreciate being pet and touched and, and loved and shown affection. So that's unusual for them. So they're very, they're usually distant at first, and then they, they naturally start to enjoy it. And the same with the dogs. At first, they're afraid of them, but gradually, you know, I take them by the hand. They, they just touch the dogs, and, and that's a big first step, just making physical contact. And nothing bad happens, and... They start to enjoy it because I think it's very natural for children and dogs to enjoy each other's company. That's not something that has to be taught. They just go well together. Uh, they have the same energy level. And um, and then I look up, and this has happened more than once. And all of a sudden I see, you know, dozens of children watching us on the other side of the fence of, of the pen. Because that's very unusual for them to see somebody playing with a dog uh, or playing with a donkey. And then they all, one by one, line up. We've done this with maybe three large busloads of, like, 50, 100 kids. And it happens every the same way every time. Is Nobody wants to see the animals. They want to play. Then I, I take one or two of them down. Uh, they start playing with them. Then everybody wants to come inside the pen and play with the animals. And, uh, you know, it's the amazing thing about these animals is that although most of them were abused most of their lives... Or have negative experiences. That's why they ended up in our shelter. They still love unconditionally. Uh, we don't have any aggressive dogs. The, the most we have um, emotionally prepared animals we have are uh, maybe dogs that have been so badly abused that they they shy away from people and they'll bark if somebody gets close. But we've never ever ever. I've had this sanctuary now for about ten years. We've never had an incident where a dog has attacked a human or shown any aggression to a human. The most we've had is that a dog will feel cornered and, and um, bark at somebody, uh, but not approach them. They'll be backing you off. So, uh, and especially when we bring in the kids, I make sure we only expose them to the animals that are especially loving towards children, which is most of them. Most of them just can't wait to be able to play with children. I mean, when you were there, you probably noticed that, right? Yeah,
0: I'm yeah. Sure?
1: That, that most of the animals were very approachable.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think most of them are street dogs, so they live in packs, they live, like, together, so they are very social. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, like, most of them, they just ran to me and wanted to be the first one to be petted. It was really hard to get Mm -hmm. through. (laughs) Yeah, I just saw, like, some, as you mentioned, that they have been so abused, and, like, in a, I can't even imagine them in, like, how horrible ways. They just kind of shut down, and I think it's really hard to get them back to life. Yeah, but at least this is a place where it can happen because they have the space and the time there. I remember like two or three cases there. Um, but, I mean, you have tons of uh, dogs there. It was really incredible to see also there were big groups in the several yards, yeah, in the sections. And that they were able to be together, to hang out in like like 20 or 30 dogs together. There was so much space on your property that every single one had the chance to get away from each other if they didn't feel comfortable enough. Um, so I think that's a great thing about how you structured it.
1: Yeah, well, we they chose the each pack, as you put it, and they're different sized packs. There's a really large pack which, with the big dogs. They control most of the space. Uh, but the smaller packs have different spaces and some packs are just two or three dogs together. And we have have a couple that are just afraid of everybody they just like you said shut down but there's two dogs like that that have completely shut down but then we put them in their own little space and they became best friends together and they sort of take care of each other and, and, and in, a, in a way they're they seem to be perfectly happy but the, the, what happens when we get into problems is when when I or somebody else comes through that they, they all just crave affection every pack craves affection Uh, So we start out with the big pack, and then when we walk from the big pack to the next pack, the big pack wants to follow you. Now, all of a sudden, they're infringing on the other pack's territory, so they start barking at each other. And Mm -hmm. that's the only time we have problems is when the packs um, start mixing because they they want somebody's affection. Other than that, they figured out a way to, to have a status quo that's acceptable to everybody. Yeah. You know, the big pack gets the big space, the smaller pack gets the little smaller space, all the way down to the two two guys um that are, are really shut down, they get their own little corner, but they're perfectly happy in the corner. So the yes. dogs don't naturally want to fight each other. They they just want to establish their own boundaries. And once they've established the boundaries, you know, we don't have to make up rules for them. They take care of themselves.
0: I'm still wondering like in the beginning when you were thinking about this idea of founding this yeah, bubble place. Why was it dogs? Like, Was it like the, the first animal that came up to your mind? Because you see it on the street actually every day?
1: Yeah, I, I knew nothing about dogs. I I was a cat person. I thought <laughs> dogs were annoying. And so I'd never had any interaction with dogs. Um, I've had cats most of my life. But when we got there, the, the, because of the culture, the, the Muslim culture, for whatever reason, it was decided. And I don't think this is... Um, factually correct, but who am I to say? It was decided that dogs are dirty. Uh, they call them That Their saliva is considered dirty. But, you know, I've talked to different people with different opinions about it. You know, there, there's, there, yeah, there's saliva is considered dirty, but then you're just supposed to wash. It doesn't mean that the whole animal is dirty. But they have this impression that dogs are dirty and that cats are somehow cleaner, that cats take care of um, rodent problems, uh, so they, they mistreat dogs, and so the streets are full of dogs, and uh, very few people, I don't know if anybody actually has what's called a baladi dog, which is like a mutt, a street dog, um, that'll put a, a street dog in their own house, not in Nablus. Maybe in Ramallah, there's more Western influence, but in Nablus, I don't know anybody who has one of these um, mutts, baladi dogs in their own house it's considered too dirty so the at best they'll chain the dog but even that you don't see much of that they they just don't deal with dogs the only dogs they'll they'll um, have as pets are german shepherds or or uh, huskies for some reason for some reason they don't think that's against their religion but all oh, the other dogs are but other than that they they don't want to have anything to do with them so they're they're abused I think some people are nice enough that they'll give them food every once in a while, but they'll never keep them in their own house because they're considered dirty. So that's the, we were forced into that situation. Is uh, we had you know all these dogs, hundreds of dogs, maybe thousand dogs in the street of Nobles, and and nobody was caring for them. The city didn't care for them. The only thing the city did was manage the population by shooting them and poisoning them that's literally all they would do so we grew at first we we would just you know we would get one dog here or there we'd um, we'd hear about a dog and we'd take them into the sanctuary Uh, but it's come to the point now where we're probably the largest sanctuary in Palestine we have um, 70 dogs now Uh, and um, people started calling us anytime a dog got hit in the street um, they would call us and if it weren't for us there would be nobody to help them um, there there are two other sanctuaries or two other animal rights groups that uh, help dogs. <clears throat> neither of them have the capacity we have, so we were kind of thrown into the situation where if you know if an animal needed help, we were the only ones that could take care of them. and so we grew very quickly we We grew from just a few dogs in twenty fourteen to what we had we had ninety dogs or maybe even more a few months ago and and then we we had we're now cutting back because it's infringing on the quality of life for the animals that are there because it's starting to get too crowded so yeah to answer your question is um i didn't choose dogs um the situation chose me they um that's how we got the dogs is that that people mistreated them they didn't um, take care of them so we had to step up and with the donkeys uh the donkeys are Kind of like humans the society uses them while they're uh, youthful and uh, full of energy and can do work and as soon as they no longer can work they throw them out in the street and so our first few donkeys were just dogs that had work, um, donkeys that had worked their whole lives hard labor being beaten every day and as soon as they no longer could work uh, they throw them out into the street Uh, to be to starve or be eaten by dogs or some bad fate happened to them. So it was very tough for the donkeys. Unfortunately, less and less of donkeys are being used for labor. So even 10 years ago, much more. We, We had much more donkeys that were in the street that we did rescue.
0: So you are now back in the U.S., but you have been to Palestine like a couple of weeks ago, and you spent there also a couple of weeks. So how is it, first of all... Like managing everything from being so far away, I mean I, I met someone like an elderly man that is working for you or at this place. Mm-hmm. How yeah. is it organized? You mentioned already like also the quality life of the, every single animal that is living there. Yeah, mm-hmm. how do you do that?
1: Um, well, I, I couldn't do it without the the family basically so uh, that lives there. There's a family so i I did this sanctuary in a village called Asira. Which is just out the lar- outside the larger town of Nablus. At first, I, I hired somebody because my family's from Nablus, so we have a lot of connections there. So I hired somebody from Nablus to take care of the uh, animals at this sanctuary, but it-, it just didn't work out. It- it, um, I couldn't. I've yet to find anybody in that area that really cares about the animals. So it was a matter of finding somebody who would be willing to do the work for money. You know, the fact that they were had to travel. To the village, they didn't have any connections in the village, uh, no local connection to the village. It was just a job to them. I ended up losing, I think, a lot of resources trying to get that to work because I don't think it did work. It was a good start. I had a couple of people from Nobles. Um, we tried several people that did a good job under the circumstances and were able to establish some of the foundations, excavate the land, uh, build a few um, buildings there. The, the cabin was built at that time. But then I think to be ongoing, and now it's been, like I said, almost 10 years, uh, we needed to use, I think, somebody local, uh, somebody familiar with the area, somebody comfortable and able to be there on a moment's notice. And and that's when I um, ran into the family, basically, that's taking care of the animals now, who happened to live right across the street, basically, from the sanctuary. So that was just pure luck, is that I met this person He worked for um, somebody that, that um, or for my family, my extended family. And uh, he said, sure, I'll, I'll, you know, since it's just across the street, you know, I'll, I'll come and help manage it while you're gone. I got that person to manage it. Um, you met the father who, who's uh, taking care, who's the groundskeeper. And now I've got his wife is helping with doing liaison with the people in the West because she speaks very fluent English. So a lot of our donations come from the U.S., where I'm based. So she does a lot of communication with our donors because she speaks slow in English. So she keeps them up to date on how the animals are doing and just makes sure, um, you know, the sponsors are all happy and continue supporting that organization. And then we had his his, um, younger brother come in. So I think the difference was the reason it was I was able to sustain it was I shifted from just trying to hire anybody who was willing to do the work to trying to work locally and trying to be more organic and part of the community. And I think people reacted. I think the um, when people saw, and the community saw that I was helping the economy of the community, you know, when it came time to pick olives, there's a bunch of olive trees on the sanctuary. Um, and We used local help to help us with, uh, with that. When we built anything, we always used local people. So that was a shift. That I was, I sort of eased into. That probably was why it was able to be sustained. Is I started to focus more on uh, working more locally and less with the people in the in the city.
0: Yeah, great that you've met this family. And it's always better when people from the inside, when they have like this inner motivation to like, actually do this kind of work. This is definitely more mm-hmm. sustainable. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, then it's just the job, right?
0: The first time I contacted you, you you mentioned like some emergency cases that you had or that you had to face when you were there on the ground in Palestine. Like maybe you can tell me a little bit about this.
1: Yeah. So far, I've painted this beautiful, rosy picture of um, this little bubble where everything is so perfect. Uh, and And it was that way for several years. But then, you know, reality hits. And you realize you're in a very tough situation and, and you know, I'm not going to lie to you, we've lost many animals that have died and it's all very difficult. It's tough. The West Bank is tough for everybody. So to think that you could just, you know, have this little acre of land where nothing bad happens is, is delusional. So a lot of bad things happen. And one of the bad things happened, I think, was when we were talking or right before or after we were talking. One of the emergencies we ran into recently was maybe two or three months ago. The village we were in, Asira, went around with loudspeakers saying that they, they needed to do population control on the animals. So they were going to lay out poison in all the streets and kill all the dogs. And uh, they were going to do it in 24 hours. They were planning to do this. So it wasn't like there was time to negotiate an alternative or explain to them why it's not going to solve anything to poison all the animals. Because they'll just other dogs from other areas will come in. And these new dogs that come in may be more vicious. They may have diseases. And, and soon you'll have more dogs than you had before. So I wish we had the opportunity to explain that to the, the city council. But they said they'd already made the decision. Within 24 hours, they're going to start laying out poison. And they were going around with these loudspeakers saying, if you have any pets, make sure they stay inside, uh, because tomorrow we're going to start killing all the animals. Uh, we have got notified that there's people all around the West Bank heard about it. Everybody was in panic mode trying to figure out what to do, trying to put pressure on the city, but they already had made the decision to do this. Fortunately, Osama, who's the manager, I don't know if you met him, you met his father. I don't know if you met Osama. He's the guy who manages the property. Um, had already trapped a few dogs before. So we decided what we we're going to do is evacuate. We had nowhere to put all these animals, but we decided to evacuate all the dogs in the village. So he started within an hour. He started trapping dogs. Every dog he could find, he'd, he'd lay out all these, he'd get out five traps. Within a week or two, he trapped 40 dogs. Uh, we evacuated them from the village and fortunately it was enough that the uh, city or the municipality decided to stop the poison they didn't do the poison it it bought us time so first we just evacuated the 40 dogs it um, lessened the pressure the municipality was feeling from the people who were telling them these dogs have taken over they're threatening our kids whatever So that pressure was relieved, and it bought us time. It's not a solution. I mean, it's a big problem that's taken you know decades to um, get to this stage. So it's not going to be a problem that can be solved quickly. But it bought us some time to work on a solution. And so when we evacuated the dogs, we we were able to raise a little money and, and stay and neuter them all and vaccinate them. And then we released them in a rural area where we could still feed them. So uh, we kept them with us until we finished treating them, and that that was a difficult situation. I think that may have been about the time we were talking because then we were way overcrowded. Uh, we had you know our 70 normal dogs plus that are normally residents plus 40 new dogs on top of that, and of course everybody's fighting with everybody. The new dogs are all afraid. It was very stressful uh, mm-hmm. until we were able to treat most of the dogs. Uh, we were able to treat all of them, give them vaccinations, and, and um, spay and neuter them. Uh, and then we made the decision to release them, uh, like I said, just outside in the rural area. And then Osama kept feeding them. He says most of them still come back. This is months later. They still get fed. Uh, we have no space for them, but they seem to be OK. You know, a few of them, literally just a couple of them, went back to the village. Um, but most of them just stayed where they were and probably were happier not dealing with people all the time. So that that's one of the emergencies we had. But, you know, we get emergencies every week where, imagine uh, the entire West Bank, where there's nobody responsible for caring for animals. So, you know, there's a dog hit in the street virtually every week and nobody to care for them. Uh, so there's a Palestine Animal League in Ramallah, which does its best. It doesn't have facilities. It doesn't have an acre of land like we have. So they can treat animals, and they do treat animals. And then there's uh, Diana in, in Bethlehem has her sanctuary, but it's not a sanctuary. It's more of a shelter where the dogs stay in rooms. So there's like two or three dogs per room, and that's, you know, that's not a long-term solution. And that's it. So if a dog gets hit in the street, th- those are the three options. We've already hit capacity, so we can't really take any more dogs at the moment uh, until mm. we can expand. So it's it's very stressful. Um, I'm sure most animal rights groups around the world have a lot of stress. Uh, but in, in the West Bank, it's particularly stressful. We, we really don't have the resources because unlike other places, we we get zero help from, from the municipality.
0: Yeah, that's actually the next question that I wanted to ask you. Like, what is the uniqueness of the animal welfare situation, especially for stray dogs in Palestine, like, compared to... I mean, you know the situation from the U.S. Like, what makes it so different?
1: Uh, we, we have um, obstacles that others don't have to deal with. One thing I bumped into right away was the crackdown on any funding going into the West Bank. So I would raise money in the U.S. and at let's say, tens of thousands of dollars. And I would just want to give it to Osama to you know spend money for food and, and veterinary care. The first time I tried to send the money, they closed my bank account. And I asked them, you know, why did you close my account? And they said, "Uh, we don't have to tell. This is the bank. This is Bank of America. And they said, "Uh, we don't have to tell you. Here's the regulations. We have the right to close your account for whatever reason we want without telling you. Then I transferred. I created a new account at Wells Fargo Bank. I sent the money. They sent the money back. They said, you can't send the money there. So, so far, the only way I can even send money there is to take it by hand or find a friend that takes take it there. There's an absolute crackdown on sending money to NGOs. They've made it exceptionally hard, which I have not been able to crack yet. I have not been able to send money to my own account in my name in the West Bank. The only way I've been able to get it there is to go, somebody take it by hand. So getting funding... Over there is a huge challenge, and I've had organizations I've tried to raise money from in the U.S. and in Europe that fused my application or would accept it and then back out at the end because when they found out it was in the West Bank, um, there was one, it's the equivalent of um, Doctors Without Borders, it's like um, Vets Without Borders, something like that. And They said they were going to come and do a spay program, spay and neuter program for us. And I was really excited about it because we really need that. You know, that's the best way, as you know, to control population is to stay and neuter. A week before they were planning to come, we had everything arranged. We had the clinic set up. We were going to bring in all the animals and they were going to do these uh, spays and neuters for us. They called us and they said, so where are you exactly? I said, well, we're, I told you where we are. Uh, it's a city called Nablus, uh, near a city called Nablus. And he says, well, isn't that in the West Bank? And I said, yeah. And he says, oh, we thought it, we thought it was in Israel the vets that were planning to go don't want to go they're afraid for their lives you know they're willing to go all over the world but they're afraid to come to the west they canceled one week before our our scheduled uh, project it's difficult to get help from abroad so we have to rely on our own resources uh, which other countries don't have to deal with that they get help from abroad so when you rely on your own resources you know the vets have to deal with um, we we had difficulty with anesthesia. There's um, some restrictions on, I don't know the details, but uh, gas anesthesia for whatever reason. All the anesthesia we use is intravenous. You know, that has its own complications. That um, I've had a dog in the operating room just wake up in the middle of being an, an amputation. It's fully awake. It was, uh, it was very traumatic for me. I'm sure much more traumatic for the dog. So and then you have on top of all that, you have the internal stress that, you know, all the people there, like I said, are suffering from PTSD. They've all suffered, uh, seen at least seen, if not personally suffered from violence, all of them. So, you know, that creates tension and infighting. You know, I think um, the left movements in general tend to do infighting. But when you're under more stress, you tend to do more infighting. So it's all we can do just to keep all of us headed in the same path, you know, not fighting with each other. And I I do give credit to the other organizations that I mentioned for Diana Babish and and, um, Ahmed Safi with PAL for, you know, working with us to try to keep animal rights movement with working with one hand. Because, like I said, with all the stress, there's a lot of pressure to fight over resources because resources are so scarce. And I'm just grateful that so far we've been able to work together uh, in spite of the the, the deficiency in, in our resources, we, we we have been able to do as much as we can. And, and the only way we're able to do it, and with this is the only way we're able to do anything in the West Bank, given the, the circumstances, is we have to accept our limitations and realize we're not going to solve the problem in Palestine. And no but one person is going to be able to solve the problem in Palestine. We we just have to choose what it is that we can accomplish and make sure we do it the best we can and just accept that animals are going to die because of not enough medical care, that vets do not have proper training, etc. We just have to accept it. I had to accept dogs dying for very bad reasons, dogs that died that there's no reason they would have died if they were anywhere else but the West Bank. I have to accept it and move on and just say, well, except we're going to lose a certain number of dogs for bad reasons and try to save as many as we can.
0: It's a lot that you've seen already and experienced during that kind of work. You also said something about the pandemic that yeah, the situation has changed because of that. How did it change mm-hmm. and what are your plans or your ideas how it can go like back to the, the way how it was before mm-hmm. COVID hit?
1: Yeah, so that that was half the – when I started the project, it was a, a combined effort. The, I, the effort was to, yes, save the animals, but mainly to change the mindset of society to be more loving and more loving to animals. And so that, because of the pandemic, had to be shut down. We, the, we couldn't bring busloads of children anymore. Um, so we completely stopped at, at that point. And then by default, because there was nothing else to do, we started focusing entirely on saving the animals. And then I think because we didn't monitor ourselves, we went overboard. We started trying to save every animal, and uh, the situation got overcrowded. So now we're cutting back. Well, like I said, we released those 40 dogs we, we evacuated. We released them. The situation seems more stable. Financially, we're we're getting back to being stable. And so the next step, inshallah, is we're, we're going to start bringing kids back, maybe not bus loads, maybe van loads, maybe 15, 20 kids at a time, and we're, we want to get back to teaching the kids not to be afraid of the, the dogs and not to mistreat the donkeys, see them as loving creatures, uh, not just animals to be abused. So the vision has to, for me, to succeed in, in the, the mission of this project. We have to start bringing the kids back in. And I think the society there, different societies and cultures have different reactions to the pandemic. The Palestinian society, because they've gone through so much and they live on such low means, I don't think are as concerned about the pandemic as somebody living in a cushy life in the West. They have so many problems that I don't think uh, the pandemic is the top problem for them. So I think they're going to be more open to the idea of having the kids come back and play with the animals. But we just needed to stabilize because we, we just went overboard collecting <laughs> all these stray animals. And so now we're getting back to a position where there's enough room that we can start bringing the kids in. We're, we're building more fences to separate the, the, the playground from the, the rest of the animal shelter. So we're getting back to the situation with, within a year. I'm hoping that we'll start bringing the kids back in again, and we'll get back to this vision of the, the kids playing and learning to overcome their fear.
0: So you are now focusing more on the kids. Have you also had the idea of working together maybe with adults?
1: When we started that, it was, um, it all sort of came together naturally. So, you know, any group that feels oppressed, somehow when they came to the sanctuary, they loved it there more because they saw that, the, that we were not judgmental. You know, we, we start out with just kids from the kindergarten. Then we started bringing in children with autism and adults with autism. And they, you know, you may know that, you know, there's equine therapy that it's already well known that that uh, people with autism tend to bond very easily with with donkeys and horses so that was very natural and then um, we brought in a group uh, that was mute uh, deaf and mute there's a that's the name of the group i guess that nobody really cared about them they were sort of discarded by society these were all adults and we said you know well why don't you come to the sanctuary and and they came and you know we we treated them like anybody else and they got to play with the animals we played games and stuff together, and, and they just had an incredible time because they felt that society had sort of discarded them, that they'd pushed them away into a little corner. And, you know, intellectually, emotionally, they're like anybody else. They just have, you know, this they have this challenge physically. So they can't hear or speak, but there's nothing different about them. Uh, they just get treated very differently. So, you know, bringing in that group of adults, I think, was very fulfilling to me because it was the purpose of the sanctuary to show that if we really don't care if you're strong or weak or, or whatever. If you're just like anybody else, we'll treat you like everybody else. So that's the kind of thing I want the sanctuary to be is to, to anybody who feels they can't relate to other humans, which a lot of us feel that way sometimes. You know, this is a sanctuary where you're not going to be judged, where the dogs will come running up to you and the donkeys will be curious and start sniffing you. And you'll just for a moment's time, you won't feel any different than anybody else, and that that's the vision I want to continue, so like like we're saying, yes, we do want the kids to come so they can learn to to love dogs, um but I want the this to be a, a symbol for the whole society that we want everybody to be treated equally, so that that's my hope.
0: I mean, I am a vet student, uh, still doing like my final semester now. So I was wondering, how do you do that with a vet scare? Like, do you have your, you you mentioned a clinic that you built. Do you work together with uh, like a specific numbers of vets close to that area? Or how do you manage this?
1: Yeah, the veterinary care has been an incredible challenge, which is getting better very quickly. But when we started in 2016, uh, I think when we first started getting a significant number of animals it was 2014. The only vets that were there through their vet school basically uh, were trained for commercial purposes. So they they would learn how to treat sheep and euthanize them and you know just it wasn't really welfare. It wasn't an interest in the welfare of the animals. It was more of a commercial enterprise. And then, you know, Greg, we met somebody, uh, Dr. Atan, who was who very good with, with donkeys, uh, which, you know, he's, he's getting better and better every year, in fact. So he, he's an exception. But generally speaking, we couldn't find any veterinary care for for the dogs. And we went through really difficult times where, you know, a lot of animals died unnecessarily because we couldn't get them veterinary care. But within the last few years, I'd say within the last five years, that's starting to change, is uh, the vets are starting to get trained in treating small animals like dogs and cats. And, you know, we, we had an exceptional vet in, in Jerusalem, uh, Dr. Weston, was trained abroad, and um, I really trusted his work. Uh, but he's just so far, and uh, because of the, the checkpoints, it's almost impossible to get animals, you know, when you want, to Jerusalem. Uh, if, when I'm not there, we can't get animals there. Uh, Because when I'm there, I am a U.S. citizen, so I can get the um, yellow license plates on my car. And the yellow license plates allows me to go to Jerusalem. Palestinians' residents in the West Bank are not allowed to go to Jerusalem. So when I'm not there, they don't even have a way to get the the animals to Jerusalem. Once a week, he'll go to Ramallah. Dr. Rasim will go to Ramallah so that we can treat animals once a week there. So that was that interim period. And then recently, we've, we've had another vet al Ahmad, Dr. Al- Ahmad, who who's trained in small animals and opened up a clinic. So we work closely with him as well. But, you know, all the vets, I'm sure, would be the first to tell you that the, um, the, the quality of veterinary care can definitely, definitely be improved there. This is like at an early stage of, uh, you know, vets being able to deal with the smaller animals. They're getting better, you know, exponentially every year. But, uh, it's, they would be the first to tell you that they have a lot to learn. And, you know, that unfortunately they're learning by mistakes, which means an animal dies. But we really, as painful it is, there's, there's no, no other way to do it. We, we at one point started to, uh, you know, I'll tell you a story is we, we had this, we had a dog that got hit in the street and broke its pelvis and nobody in the West Bank could really treat it. So we, we have called a vet in, um, in Tel Aviv, um, who volunteered? Uh, he was with the clinic. He said, "I'll I'll take a look at the the dog." So I I was at present. I put the dog in the car. had the, my yellow license plates and everything, all set to go. The the vets waiting for me to operate on this dog. And I get to the checkpoint between the West Bank and Tel Aviv, and at the checkpoint, the um I tried to look as Western as I could because if you look Western, they just wave you through. If you could possibly have any air blood in you. You're in for, you know, the the royal treatment. You're in for the special treatment, which means they're going to put your car on the side. They're going to inspect every inch of your car. They're going to ask you a million questions. You have to go through the x-ray machine. In my case, they would have forced, because I've had this happen before, they have forced the dog to come out of the car and go through the x-ray machine. I said, I'm going to just try to be non arab We got to the checkpoint. For some reason, The guard decided to stop us. And I'm like, okay, here we go. So he's being very friendly. Oh, is this your dog? I go, no, it's not my dog. (laughs) I'm just saying this is not going to go well. So I found the dog in the street. He got hit by a car. Uh, Where where was the street? Well, I said, this dog was in in Nablus, which is like an, an Arab town, obviously. He goes, oh, so it's an Arab dog. And uh, I go, well, if, if if you mean that he was in an Arab town, then yes, he's an Arab dog. And I go, um, it's, it's just a dog. <laughs> it doesn't have a passport. And he says, I'll pull over to the side. He starts checking. He checked everything out. And he says, you have to go back. This, this Arab dog, this Arab dog is dirty. He probably has diseases. And I said, but the vet, we're just going to the vet and he's going to take care of him. And we're coming right back. He says, here's the vet's phone number, please talk to him. He didn't want to talk to anybody, he just sent us back. He says, you can't bring an Arab dog into Israel. If I'd found the dog in an Israeli settlement, he would have taken him. So I'm in panic mode. This poor dog has a broken pelvis, so I call up the vet. I say, what do I do now? He says, oh, don't worry, this happens all the time. We have a special number. We call this number, and a Jew will come and get your dog. That's the whole purpose of this organization. It's an animal rights group in in Israel. You, they give you a phone number. If you need a dog, they come and get the dog. So I pulled over to the side. We called the phone number. A Jew came, <laughs> picked up the dog, and just went across the border. Nobody asked a single question because now it's a Jewish dog.
0: Wow, yeah, that's that was definitely a, a great story. Thank you for sharing.
1: But, yeah, that's what it's like, the prejudice.
0: Yeah, but it's uh also interesting to get to know that there can be like this cooperation or like that there's also a group in, in Israel or in Israel inside that mm-hmm. was also thinking about this situation and that they came up with this like extraordinary idea how to deal with it. And yeah. but of course it's also sad that this is necessary to do. Do you think like that it's possible also to get vet students engaged into the volunteer work at Daily Hugs?
1: We would love that. And also train or work with the local vets to give them some of the latest techniques, talk about different medicine. We would really love that. And it's we've had many visitors to Palestine. I bring visitors every year with me from the West. And and a lot of them are concerned about safety and there's a war there. And every one of them says the same thing as they would never felt when they were at HUDs, they never felt safer. They felt safer at hugs than they would walking in the streets in the West. There are issues when you uh, get to the checkpoints. That's never easy, but I think as, if you have a Western passport that you're never physically in danger, You just it's just not pleasant to watch the soldiers abuse all the Palestinians. But I, I don't think, I mean, since you were there, you could maybe attest to this, but I never felt that there's any danger uh, for any visitors from the West. I think the danger is for the locals uh, that don't appear Western and don't have a Western passport. They're never secure because they don't really have any rights. Uh, but we would love for vets to come help us with spay and neuter program. We have so. If we had a, a group that's offered to do a program with us, a spay and neuter program, we would love that. We would love to be able to, in advance, maybe a month or two in advance, say, you know, let's trap a bunch of dogs in certain areas that are problematic. And let's work on staying and neutering them. And in the process, you know, the vets from abroad would engage the local vets, maybe share some of their experiences with them.
0: How much experience or knowledge do you have about, like the general animal welfare, like the street dog situation in Palestine? Because you just said something about like problematic areas or zones. Do you also know, like, do you know something about this? Like, there are populations in Palestine or like population of dogs uh, that are quite intense, or like where it's less, uh, or that there are also groups that are more problematic than others.
1: It's all problematic. Um, every major city in Palestine, Hebron, uh, Ramallah, Nablus, have no animal control, no population control. Their only population control is poisoning. But poison that I think, is illegal. They call it linnet. I don't know what that is, but it's a gruesome way to die. And shooting, which is kind of worse because they injure a lot of animals that don't die, that end up you know, with wounds that they have to survive through. So they all have problems. Ramallah has started a new program where they offered some land to, um, I, I don't know the specifics about this. I, I think PAL, Palestine Animal League, at, at one point started on this project, but they had to pull out. But th- So there's one city, uh, Ramallah, which is trying to address this through Spain and neuter. But regardless of that, that, there's just thousands and thousands of dogs in the street. The resources are nowhere sufficient. To address all of that, it's a project that's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take help from abroad because I don't think we have the the skill level to be able uh, locally to be able to handle that many spays and neuters without complications. Uh, I mean, just to let you know that when when we did our 40 dogs a spay and neuter of them, we did lose one of the females. One of the females died. One out of 40, which you know, to me is devastating, and, and um. But for the resources they had at hand, I guess it's almost the best you can do. In in the West, I think losing one out of 40 dogs, this is probably something you would know. Uh, losing one out of 40 probably is more than you would want, more than you would expect. So I think um, regardless of the efforts and the desire, I think we need help from abroad.
0: We are almost done with the time. So I have one last question for you. Because this is a podcast for vet students, for the young generation. Mm-hmm. Is this something that yeah. like you would like to tell them and some final words, some advice for their future?
1: I, I almost feel like a vet student <laughs> because <laughs> I, I knew nothing at all about dogs, much less treating dogs, until you know i started in this program because there was nobody else to do it i had to do a lot of this veterinary care i had to be present at all the the amputations and spay and neuters that all of them i was part of it and i would physically have to hold the animals down when they started waking up from anesthesia and and i'm sure the um the illusion that this is going to be just a wonderful profession where nothing you do nothing but save animals and um, bring life to the world you know, it can't last very long. It didn't with me. So the question is, what happens next? You know, what happens if you're in this because you love animals and you want to save animals? And then what happens when you do things and you make mistakes and animals die? That's the big question. Is is that the point at which you, you quit? Because my understanding is vets have like high rates of depression, because, you know, they deal with so many life and death situations and sometimes with not enough resources to deal with them. So, you know, my only comment of, of how I struggled through this is just to face it and you have to come to terms with it. Um, That, you know, are you doing more good than harm? You know, are are you are you making the world a better place? And if you're making the world a better place, God bless you. Keep doing it. You know, and if you're not, then figure out how to get better. Because you, you, we all want to make the world a better place. And if you know, people are doing it for the money or for job security, whatever, then you know, I have no comment on that. I'm assuming that the people that we're dealing with, people that are, are in, in veterinary school, want to make the world a better place. And just try to keep that in mind is that when you're doing that, you know, life isn't fair, that <laughs> you may have good intentions, but bad things are going to happen. And in, in Palestine, bad things happen a lot more than I wish they did. But in the end of the day, I had to just look in the mirror and say, you know, am I making the world a better place in spite of the fact that sometimes I make mistakes? And when you make mistakes, animals that you love die. And so, you know, that's my only advice is try to keep that in mind, is that you're doing this to make the world better. And if you're making the world better, keep doing it.
0: Wow, thank you so much for these motivating words and by sharing your own personal experiences, you make it very clear how we can overcome the challenges and yeah, the fears that we might face in the beginning of our career, but I mean, yeah, also later on every now and then while working. I think that is definitely something a lot of veterinarian students can relate to. So My lovely listeners, if you would like to follow to get to know more about Rides Foundation, to support it, then you can visit their Facebook account, Daily Hugs, so A-U-G-Z. They also have a website and you will find everything in the description of this episode. Or if you have any further questions or comments, you can also send me an email at daretocarestudentpodcasts at gmail.com Okay, so thank you for listening and then by therefore also dare to care. See you next time. Bye-bye.